It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We know that we need commitments from leaders, but it has to go beyond a commitment. It has to go beyond saying that gender equality is important on International Women's Day. It goes beyond the morning teas. It really has to be embedded in structures. And I think at times this requires making bold moves and putting people up and, and encouraging ideas that you mightn't have before. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the sixth instalment of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Dr Elise Stevenson, Fellow at the ANU National Security College and Research Fellow at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Drawing on recent data, Elise discusses the barriers for women entering and progressing within the national security domain and outlines the systemic issues that stand in the way of gender equality. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Women in National Security podcast. I'm Meg Tapia. And I'm Gabe Rotman. And we're delighted you can join us again for another episode that we hope will inspire and empower you in your journey in national security. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to our First Nations peoples and our first caretakers of this land, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this WinsPod episode. Today, Gay and I have decided to take a step back and up. Back because we're going to reflect on the episodes that we've had to date and all of the lessons and experiences our incredible guests have shared with us so far. And if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to the previous episodes, now's the time to track them down. We've got all the links in the show notes. Now, we're also going to take a step up because we're going to be looking at the data, the trends and the research that show the experiences we've been hearing about from our guests are not isolated cases. They are, in fact, common and are rooted in structural systems and choices. The upside of this is that structures can be changed with the right will and the right decisions. And to help us understand these facts and figures, we are delighted to have Dr. Elise Stevenson, a multi-award winning gender researcher, recognised by Google as one of Australia's top 50 outstanding LGBTIQ plus leaders and this year's Fulbright Scholar. Welcome to Winspot, Elise. Thanks so much for having me here. Elise, your research focuses on gender, sexuality and leadership in national security, in intelligence and diplomacy, both here in Australia and in other parts of the world. Definitely want to explore all of that. But before we dive into the research, can you tell us what was your journey into the national security landscape? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I didn't really realise I was headed in this direction, but it all sort of started when I uh, got a scholarship from the Foreign Affairs and Trade Department to study and research women's leadership across Australia and Asia a number of years ago. And being in the international stage and being able to observe the international arena and some of the dynamics and decisions that are made and the people who are representing our nation kind of spurred me on this research path of undertaking my PhD on women's leadership in international affairs, looking at these very topics, diplomacy, national security, intelligence. Where were the women? Where were they represented? How were they represented? What were their experiences, their pathways to leadership? And ultimately, what are some of the the challenges that continue to exist, both on kind of a gendered front as well as other fronts? So whether that be around sexuality or cultural and linguistic diversity and other sorts of frontiers. So although I didn't really, I suppose, know that I was headed in this direction, it's it's actually become quite natural to me now. As well as doing research, I'm an entrepreneur. I've worked all across Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I think a lot of my work when I was conducting my PhD was actually literally done on the road across Australia. So 75,000 kilometres I drove working out of, you know, four-wheel drive and, you know, tiny home hitched up on the back basically with this idea that if I am completely embedded in different communities and working around different areas of gender inequality from different angles, best able to understand, well, what are some of the contemporary issues that we're facing here in Australia and how does that match up with kind of global benchmarking? So very thrilled to now be at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and National Security College at the Australian National University, as well as still affiliated with Griffith University's Asia Institute. So your research, if we can turn to that now, has found that there are a number of barriers for women wanting to pursue a career in national security. So what are those barriers, those challenges that you mentioned, and how do we overcome them? Yeah, well, it is very hard to summarise quickly the challenges, but we can generally think about barriers to women's leadership along kind of individual lines, organisational lines and structural lines. So we know that there are individual challenges for women when it comes to negotiating things like flexible work, you know, family dynamics um, and work-like life balance, as well as some small issues around confidence and other sorts of things. But what's actually more significant and where we should be focusing most of our attention is on organisations and kind of embedded challenges, whether that's in recruitment and retention, things like security vetting, promotions practices, where people get posted both in Australia and internationally, what sorts of portfolios they're put into, whether they get specialisation opportunities or uh, stay in kind of general mainstream areas of career advancement. All of these sorts of dynamics create an organisational workplace that and, and culture that can at times be quite disadvantageous for women and um, particular minority groups. But then also looking at structural levels, evidently national security is not the only area of our society that has gender issues or, or race issues. We are living in a very complex world in which we've had uh, gender equality backsliding during the COVID pandemic, we're seeing a rise of right-wing extremist misogyny. Um, All of these sorts of things combine to a wider social kind of environment that also impacts on women who seek careers in national security. 
It's really interesting to hear you say that because a number of our guests have spoken about the internal negative voice and the self-doubt that they've experienced as individuals. I've experienced that myself. I imagine, Gay, at points in your career, you've experienced that Absolutely. too, right? It's it's common for us to experience that. And so I think we often internalise and think that, oh, it's not the organisation, it's not the structures, it's me. It's me who needs to change. But what I'm hearing you say is that actually there are things that are happening in the organisation and in the structures that are outside of our individual control. How hard is it to change that? How hard is it to change an organisation? Yeah, very hard. I mean, we're talking about institutions that in the Australian context were mostly formulated around federation. They've been inherited from US and UK kind of examples. But these are deeply gendered, you know, to start off with our very military and national security intelligence institutions were not open spaces for women's employment. They simply were not. Now, to imagine that those institutions have fundamentally changed is not really correct, right? There is a lot of that institutional architecture that has remained with us over the last 100 plus years now and become more ingrained because over time you get a sort of, I guess, a legacy effect, I suppose, of pre-existing norms and, and a culture. So it is very difficult. And I think you're battling against things like the meritocracy, this idea that women should get there by merit. And if they don't, it's their own fault. Now, we've had really awesome research in Australia with the public service conducted by Claire Burton in the 90s, which debunked the myth of the meritocracy. It does not exist in Australian public service. Now, if you combine that with things like research from Professor Michelle Ryan around kind of imposter syndrome and that idea that mm. oh, I don't know that I really should be here in this place, yeah. that I'm deserving, kind of that internalised, I don't know, lack of confidence or whatever it might be. Actually, we should be looking at, well, what is it in an organisation's environment that's making women feel like that? Because we know and we look at the data, women are just as qualified, if not more in many cases, have just as great experience and potential. And yet we're still seeing these kind of gender dynamics play out in women's careers. And that's, you know, got to change. And it's it, it's a tough job, but it absolutely does need to change. Can we just go to one of the structural issues that you mentioned, the security vetting? In what way is our security vetting process as, as it currently exists a barrier to women entering in the national security arena? Yeah, so in Australia, security vetting processes were largely kind of formulated, as in other parts of the world, in the 1950s, 1960s sort of era. They haven't really been updated since, you know, there's been some minor adjustments here and there. But if we think about the norms and the kind of structure and even the makeup of the national security workforce in the 1950s and 60s, that has massively changed over time. So not only are we seeing more women in employment now, but more cultural and linguistically diverse groups, um, a need for greater First Nations representation, etc. If you have a look at things like the marriage bar, which in Australia meant that women had to resign on marriage in public service, that was only abolished in the 19. 60s, late 1960s. If you look at things uh, like uh, First Nations um, employment and even recognition within Australia, this is all happening around the same time. Now, we know that being able to be established as trustworthy and credible and kind of someone who is reliable and able to show honesty and all of these other things, the process to be able to make those determinations, it's based on finding out all kinds of things about an individual. And this can be problematic for 
women and for particular minority groups who, A, maybe haven't traditionally been part of these government areas, who may experience kind of different experiences of authority and control and previously have been kind of surveilled by government. If you think about kind of these processes to find criminality, I mean, it was only in 1997 that Tasmania repealed uh, kind of the convictions around homosexuality. So you are looking at large groups of the population who may still have convictions for what is not now a crime, but those records haven't been expunged. And there's a lot around kind of being able to provide documentation. So we know in Australia, First Nations people do not have the same rates of getting a birth certificate. Now, what this means in terms of even providing some of that information, going for security clearances, means you can get protracted security clearance processes, as well as people who may not necessarily know how to handle certain aspects of intersectionality and diversity in a sensitive way and a way that makes people ultimately feel welcomed. And just thinking about what you're saying, for women who are perhaps experiencing domestic or financial abuse, it might be really hard for them to be able to just provide evidence of of their accounts and their financial statements if they don't have any control over that and they're in a situation where they're trying to get away from the domestic situation that they're in and pursue a career that they're really interested in. So it sounds like there's a lot of complexity there. Absolutely. And ultimately, vetting processes are are kind of designed to find out your deepest, darkest secrets and just know them, right? It's not necessarily that there's something wrong with them, but just understand them so they're not a potential blackmail risk or you know, to be able to assess kind of threat and reliability. Now, that is really tricky because the process can then re-traumatise if not done in a sensitive way. Access to documents, as you said, that can be problematic. And I think that we do have to have a look at this vetting process as one of the processes, one of the gateway processes to actually enabling more women to access national security. Has that been looked at anywhere else in the world and and changed elsewhere in the world? Or is the challenge that we face here in Australia a common challenge globally and it's just really hard, it's too hard to tackle? Yeah, it, it is a common challenge. So there's a little bit of progress that's being made in the United States right now, particularly around cultural diversity. Essentially, within intelligence and national security communities, we know that there is an imperative to be able to understand all potential hypotheses of you know what could happen in our world and be able able to plan against that. To be able to do that, you need infinite diversity. You need to be able to have amongst your national security cohort, people from every kind of ethnic background, from every kind of religious and cultural group, from every kind of walk of life, in order to be able to fully see every potential reality. So there is a real strong business case for that. And we are seeing some push for reform in the United States, including led by Rand Corporation, who's written a little bit on this topic. However, in general, even in the research, this is a major research gap. And if we want to talk about some of the real systemic challenges for getting greater diversity in national security, one of the big things is that there's not always a great deal of transparency or data sharing, and there's been limited research on the gendered and other dynamics of national security and actually how we need to continue to transform systems. So you have that transparency with, say, annual reports in terms of the data that comes through that, but what sort of transparency, what additional transparency do we need in this space? 
Yes, so you are right. We do have annual reports, but they the data that is in annual reports is sometimes a little bit hit and miss. For instance, in the women in the ADF reports that come out annually with the general defence annual reports, the kind of statistics and sometimes the graphs aren't actually broken down into exact numbers. So you get percentages, but even then it's very hard to line up and see exactly what percentage are we looking at. There's not always kind of the graph clarity even. So the data that's reported, it looks like it's fulsome data, but if you try to dig a little bit deeper and see, well, what's actually behind this and what does this actually mean? You you can't get access to all that information. So there's definitely an, a, a need to improve our reporting in annual reports, but also for, I think, the National Security and Intelligence Agencies, this is a moment to say, well, hey, what do we actually know about the issues of diversity in our organisation? What have we actually studied and are there abilities for us to partner with others to have a better idea? In fact, the UK's uh, Intelligence and Security Parliamentary Committee found that one of the core things that could help in gaining greater diversity was being able to partner up with external organisations like universities or think tanks to actually take a deeper dive into some of the diversity issues because, you know, it's all very well studying it from the inside, but sometimes you don't have the necessary resources, clarity or expertise to actually properly map. Well, how are you tracking and see some of the potential gaps as well as the strengths and be able to share that across agencies, which is another really important part of this picture. Yeah, there's not enough sharing. Mm, absolutely. Very siloed okay. actions, yeah. I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is this community deals with things that are sensitive and secretive. So how much is that used as a excuse, I suppose, to say, well, no, you can't actually see our data because even our people are protected? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really big, for research, it's a very big methodological struggle. However, ultimately, we are opening ourselves up to greater security risks by not having the diversity that we need in our national security. And there's been a lot written on this. Essentially, if we are able to gain the, the diversity that we should have to reflect the Australian society, Australia will have an asymmetrical advantage, right? So we're talking about being, you know, one of the few countries leading the way in terms of diversity. This is potentially a really, really strong platform to work off. Furthermore, we know that countries around the world are increasingly pushing for diversity and they're achieving it. Now, we don't want to be left behind because that also puts us at a disadvantage. So this is actually crucial from it's not just a nice to have, it's not a things separate to achieving national security aims. Actually, we know that we need to entwine the two together. There's some really great research out there from the Middle East, for instance, around the link between domestic gender inequality and things like domestic violence to state-level inequalities and state-level violence. So if we do not tackle some of this at our, you know, kind of domestic level and within our agencies, then we are more likely to see a fractured world. So we've spoken about the barriers to entry to the national security community. Can we talk now about the barriers to advancement? I know your research has focused a lot on that as well. So can you just talk us through what are those barriers to advancement for women in the national security space? What challenges exist and are we in any way overcoming any of those challenges? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are some positives in that we are increasing representation, although it is very slow, I would say, in some respects. So in our foreign affairs, we're, we're almost at parity in terms of women's leadership and, and women do represent a majority of our diplomats, for instance. When we look to national security, representation is much lower. I think in the ADF, it's currently hovering at around 19%. But Interestingly, when we look at kind of women's proportional representation, so, you know, they're 20% in leadership, 20% overall in the department, we're seeing that national security, sometimes they're able to achieve proportional representation better. So just to explain, that means that you've got the same proportion of women in those leadership ranks as you do throughout the organisation. That's correct. And so that is a a positive to see in terms of, okay, well, if we've got women there, we can see that they are being promoted up the chain, although there are limits to this, right? right? So we've not yet seen a chief of defence force who's a woman, for instance. And if we have a look at specific roles in that hierarchy, we're still seeing kind of an occupational segregation. So the glass ceiling, I suppose you could call it, exists. But further to that, there's this concept called the glass cliff. So women may be getting leadership roles, but it's often in more precarious positions uh, or in positions that perhaps don't have as much prestige or clout or status. So, for instance, all across many thousands of ambassadorial appointments, for instance, in a lot of study around this that shows that women are least likely to be posted to high status, significant trade and economic and military powers, and they're most likely to be posted in deputy positions. These themes flow through to national security. So we're seeing a lot of challenges around the types of leadership that women are put in, not just are they there, Mm -hmm. but then what kinds and what are those experiences of leadership If we look at other things, we still have to look at pay gaps. This is still an issue in Australia. And in fact, there was some backsliding during COVID. Harassment, obviously, we've had a national moment around sexual harassment in Parliament. Again, there is merit in in extending this lens back into our national security and other agencies. Access to flexible work, where it may be provided in policy, we're not always seeing uptake. And a lot of this might be down to individual managers. However, also... In order to have kind of equality of uptake around some of these opportunities and, and workplace conditions, you also need to have men and, and others taking up flexible work and, you know, parental leave policies, right? That's what we know from research. If a manager or a man, for instance, is has taken up on some of those opportunities, they're more likely to approve those opportunities for women. So there's a lot of areas <laughs> that really require attention. I think I'd be directing... Uh, national security kind of leaders now to be looking at some of that segregation across their workplace. So what roles and what positions are you seeing women kind of dominate in and men dominate in and how far up the chain are women getting and what are their experiences? And I think that this really pushes for knowing more than just the statistics. We need to dig deeper. We'll be back in a moment. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Elise, I, I want to have a conversation around this idea that there's kind of an anecdotal view that the white heterosexual man has it easier. Um, is there any research around that that validates that this is true, that shows that other parts of, of our workforce have a harder time? Like where would I, as a culturally and linguistically diverse background woman, where do I fit into this a scale of research. Yeah, so we've had some of this research already around the pay gap and we know that there is a, a pay gap that's both gender and racial and, you know, affected by disability and sexuality and all the rest. But there's been some really exciting recent research around basically quantifying and, and the data set was over two. 25,000 respondents to quantify the fact that white, able-bodied, heterosexual, cisgendered men have unprecedented levels of of advantage, sorry, that is not able to be explained basically. So that privilege that comes from just being who they are. Now that's really, really significant because we, we Thought. We think we have lots of qualitative data that, you know, being a, you know, white heterosexual man is generally, you know, where you have the most privilege in society. Well, this data quantifies it and it does it specifically around STEM. That's really important if we're talking about national security because a lot of the national security pipeline comes from STEM background. So what it means is that we actually have to be really intersectional in our approach to uh, policies and interventions and solutions to counter this kind of unearned privilege that we see white heterosexual men having. Now, it's not that they don't have disadvantages too, but it is saying that in the policies that we have, we actually have to be quite tailored and think about how things like not just gender, but sexuality, race and ethnicity, First Nations or other status, disability and so on may affect a person's opportunities and their privilege or lack thereof. And what's the opposite of of that privileged position, I suppose? Is it harassment? Is it lower pay? Is it less opportunity for advancement? Is it all of the above? Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely. So privilege really ties additional respect and opportunities and all of these sorts of things across the board. So it's really witnessed in, you know, almost every circumstance. And we've seen that before around the way that CVs and resumes are judged and, you know, how all things being equal, but just the name changed. We see kind of privilege attached to Anglo male names. So really... Yes, we need to, privilege extends kind of across the board. And, yeah. and from that research in particular, the researchers found that it was black LGBTIQ plus, uh, disabled women who have the greatest disadvantage. And there's a kind of a scale of, uh, around 32 other identities that they've put together. So very fascinating research, really worth having a look at. We're going to put that research in the show notes so people can find themselves on the scale. And uh, if you find yourself on the scale and you're a bit shocked by the results, then send us an email. We want to hear from you and about your experience. Mm. So 
all of the guests that we've had on the Winds Pod so far have been absolute trailblazers. Nina Davidson, Kath Roberts, um, Catherine Byrne, Abigail Bradshaw, Julian Guevara, they've all been amazing trailblazing women. Does a few trailblazers equal progress or do we need to think about having targets or quotas, which I know is controversial, but how much of a role does that play in being able to create real change? Absolutely. So the research is really upfront with this. Quotas and targets work. And I receive a lot of backlash around this idea. And, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, no, but what if a bad woman gets in? And I turn around and I say to them, well, haven't we had a few bad men get in? And I think that we really have to move past this idea that, oh, no, we could be letting through a few bad people. I mean, employment is full of all different types of people. We're going to encounter these issues anyway. What we do know from the research is we need diversity and that quotas help to achieve diversity. Now, you might not need them forever, but they are very, very effective. So Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, for instance, have had enormous success since first instituting their Women in Leadership strategy about five or six years ago now to now. So that is absolutely one way to go. We do know that trailblazers and role models have a place, and we do know that that is important for showing others that, yes, this is possible, but we cannot mean, you know, we cannot do that and then kind of have a tick box exercise of, yes, that's done. We don't need to focus on it anymore. And in fact, a lot of the research points to the progress made in national security and in international affairs more broadly can sometimes obscure the challenges that still remain. So if you are seeing, you know, 50-50 representation in leadership now, or you notice that you've got a female secretary of department or some other sort of kind of very overt sign of equality, actually, that's not the end of the story. And you still need to push further because in many cases, we've just obscured other forms of challenges. And we also know from the research that in diplomacy, again, for instance, although women's representation has vastly increased over the last 30 years, gender patterns in diplomacy have not declined. So we're still seeing gender inequalities. They change, they evolve. So we do have to look at this. And I think that we can look to a few a few things in Australia where we're seeing kind of increased securitization, which is mostly male-dominated fields away from, for instance, softer forms of international affairs where women tend to uh, dominate more. You've written extensively on this notion of a feminist foreign policy. Can you just talk us through what that means, what that looks like, and what the impact would be in terms of our the region and our influence and reputation in the region and more globally? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the, the things that we've seen since 2014 has been a real move across kind of our leading nations in the world to adopt a feminist foreign policy. So it was led by Sweden in 2014. But since then, all kinds of countries have adopted these policies, Mexico and other Scandinavian European countries, and even those in the region are looking to more feminist foreign policy. In essence, it's about centering gender equality in foreign affairs under the notion for what we've kind of talked about already. So if we address gender inequalities, it addresses things like poverty, economic inequality, violence, society's greater well-being and opportunities. Um, We know it's linked to development. We know that it's linked to reducing interstate violence. So in essence, because gender inequalities are such a major issue globally and 
form a large part of, I suppose, our global issues in terms of interstate violence or, you know, the breakdown of relationships, that by centering these more kind of feminist foreign policy or national security policies, we're able to have greater impact in the world as well as promote gender equality, which is so direly needed. I mean, the latest World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap reports pitch that in our East Asia and Pacific region, it'll be another some 162 years before we achieve equality. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to far away. (laughs) You know, by doing this, we know that it, you know, these sorts of policies increase our credibility with Mm. some of our core allies um, and our reputation and our ability to kind of walk the talk. And we know when Monash researcher Katrina Lee Koo has done a lot of research around this, basically showing how a lot of our policies are actually quite pro-gender in reality. So why not come out and, and be proud of it? And I think now that we have a kind of a First Nations foreign policy under the new commitments from Senator Penny Wong, we have a real opportunity to ingrain some of these core Australian values which underpin our national interest in our foreign and national security policies. What I'm hearing is that everything in society improves by addressing gender inequality and promoting diversity. Yep. In essence, you're absolutely right. I want to touch on then kind of the role of girls in society. We talk a lot about, particularly in the context of STEM or security roles and and policing, um, the importance of of encouraging young girls to think about careers in this space. Certainly this pod is intended to empower and encourage young women to think about a career in national security. Is that part of the solution? We seem to focus a lot on young girls. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to address pipeline issues. And I think if we're looking at gender inequalities wider in society, we know we have to start with young people, young girls, young boys, just young people in general. That's really important because often the gender unequal norms, they start from kind of being socialised and taught over time from childhood to an older age. So really, we, we have critical juncture if we focus on young people. One of the the things I think that's important is really how we then speak about national security and and this kind of work. I mean, it's traditionally been quite masculinized, and you know you hear a lot of kind of hard words, and mm-hmm. you know it's quite a perhaps a scary field to approach if you're thinking about being a young person, and you don't really know a lot about it also because there's not always the kind of transparency that might help you learn more. One of my colleagues does a lot of work, you know in getting more women into STEM. And she ran an experiment a few years ago around basically trying to get more women into bridge building. And so the first advertisement they put out for young people was to try and get school-aged kids involved in this competition. And they said, you know, come build a bridge, engineering, you know, exciting kind of building, all of that sort of thing. And they got almost everyone who applied was young boys. So they ran the advertisement a second time, but instead of using that same language around building and bridges and all of the rest, which might have kind of been a bit gender laden in terms of, you know, male dominated industries and construction, they used language like opportunity to to create pathways from one place to another. They used much more creative language and they got almost all women apply or girls apply. So A lot of this is about how we talk about the industry and breaking down kind of our ideas of what does even national security entail? Because actually it's, it's a really exciting 
workplace, right? And the ability to solve big problems, um, collaborate with all kinds of interesting people and have something that's really nationally significant to broad communities. I mean, that kind of appeals to everyone, right? So there's a lot of work that could be done in this space. And I think we, yeah, ultimately need to see a little bit more. Maybe we need a softer, more caring, uh, creative language using James Bond female equivalent in our <laughs> movies. Well, I mean, James Bond, I don't know if he's always been the best <laughs> example, but, um, but you know, there is an opportunity to, to shake this space up. Yeah. It is so important, the, that notion of language, and it is, as you say, so laden. So just your thoughts on how we go about changing the language around national security, but also how do we get more female voices in this space? We've got, we've talked about that pipeline. We've addressed those challenges that are gradually being overcome in terms of the barriers to entry and advancement. But how do we actually get more women out there speaking about national security? And also how do we change the language that surrounds national security yeah. and discussions on national security. And I think this has to be really conscious is the first thing. I think that for anyone who's listening and who maybe is of the idea that actually if we just hold on and wait long enough, quality will happen, no, it won't. We've got enough evidence now from Australia, let alone globally, to show that actually we do need to work at equality. So it's not something you can kind of set and forget or think that no pipeline issues will solve this issue because they won't. And we've seen in the US recently, for instance, backsliding on a whole lot of different equality issues. So we know that Yes, language is important. The kind of advertising and those sorts of recruitment um, methods that we use has to be quite diverse and really tap into what diverse people and audiences are looking for. We know that things like employee referral programs are important for building up a diverse workforce, as well as recruiter training, overt policies towards equality, but also building up of staff networks and giving those networks power. So, for instance, we know in, in foreign affairs that often it was staff networks who pushed for greater equality, and actually they knew the policies and the reality of the work best that they were able to advise on actually this is what needs to change but you need power and you need some form of authority to go with that so yes network people but also give them some sense of power and agency to make changes where needed we know that we need commitments from leaders but it has to go beyond a commitment. It has to go beyond saying that gender equality is important on International Women's Day or those International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia and all of those sorts of things. It goes beyond the morning teas. Okay. It goes beyond all of that. It really has to be embedded in structures. And I think at times this requires making bold moves and putting people up and, and encouraging ideas that maybe you mightn't have before, right? We need a diversity of ideas. To partner with that, we need interagency collaboration. So across national security, we do have some agencies that are doing better or who have worked out particular areas of policy that they've found have really worked. So maybe a community of practice or something. Yeah. So, and we heard from Abigail Bradshaw about some of the initiatives that they've taken forward in ASD and the ACSC that have helped to address some of those barriers. And clearly it's working for them because they've been able to mm. achieve a 50-50 uh, gender parity in uh, their leadership ranks. So it works. Absolutely. So, you know, being able to share some of those stories, but also how it was done is really, really critical. 
And I think that that interagency collaboration, when you partner that with external university or think tank help, then you get a really strong ability to push forwards in a kind of a more holistic way and be able to plug some of those gaps that you might otherwise be struggling with. At the bottom line, there's a lot of things in our world that change and they change quite rapidly. So we we do need to be quite responsive to that, but also more proactive. So we can't wait until the next scandal breaks around some sort of gender inequality or harassment for us to, to make a step, right? This is a problem right now. We actually need to address the problem right now. Yeah. This might be a bit of a loaded question, but um, do you think a podcast like this can help? <laughs> Excellent question, Meg. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, the more people who are talking about these issues, the better. I think that one of the really important things and one of the roles that I see research in really helping is keeping accountability, but also being that critical friend and partner. So much like researchers can partner with organisations to think forwards about the way and where we how we get to the goals that we all want to achieve. Podcasts like this are a bit of a critical friend, right, where we're tossing around ideas, research, sharing experiences with the explicit aim that this improves the sector, which improves the quality of national security that we can provide. It is a win-win situation and scenario. I would love to see even more people acting in this space, and I think not just to kind of have women or diverse minority groups shoulder the burden for some of this, right? I think we need a much more structured approach too. Elise, to quote Will Anderson, you've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was um, that was really eye-opening. And I've always felt like surely I can't be the only one who feels this way, who has these experiences. We've been hearing from women on the show who have also had very internalised um, experiences and through time have been able to find their power, find their place. But what you're telling us is that actually a lot of this has to do with the organisation and the structures. It's not just about the individual. So for our listeners, take heart in that. Absolutely. And I think that um, if I can add one final thing, it would be that United Nations in 2020 found that 90% of the world's population has an ingrained bias against women. So we're looking at some major challenges here Mm. and it just re-emphasises, you know, if you've been thinking that you need to do something or you've got the goodwill there but are not sure how to tackle the next steps, find people who can support you. Us researchers, we're here. People at the podcast here, we're here. Um, let's all actually tackle some of these issues because they are not just important morally, but of the national imperative. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks, Elise. <laughs> so, yeah, let's recap real quickly on that conversation because that was fantastic. Amazing. And the, the big thing uh, that I got from that conversation was that you don't need to fix women and you don't need to fix individuals. We need to fix organisations and we need to fix structures. Exactly. And the key takeout for me well, then was the need for greater transparency. You, everyone seems to think that they've got the problem sorted, the challenge sorted, the barriers sorted by declaring the figures in annual reports and yet we need greater granularity far greater granularity. 
Also acknowledging that there have been improvements so far. We've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. And for me, the most important message, quotas and targets work. Yeah, I know it's a bit controversial, but I think you're absolutely right. What I've seen is that women are powering through into the top jobs despite the bias, but there's clearly more that can be done and that needs the existing leadership to commit to change. Yeah, and also the staff, the staff network. So it's a sort of, it's coming from the staff and it's coming from the leaders. So everyone needs to play an active role in this and an innovative role in this. Absolutely. Great conversation today. So thank you for joining us for our conversation with Dr. Elise Stevenson. And don't forget to mark your diaries for our WINS Live event and podcast recording on Thursday the 10th of November here in Canberra. We've got a number of free tickets for the event, so if you want to be part of this very special podcast, find the details and the links in the show notes. And enter the competition by telling us in one short paragraph why you'd like to attend this WINS Live event. Until then, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.